Temptation to sin, how come we still have a tendency to sin? It's one of the questions they've often asked me. The question they asked last week is, why did God create a world where He allowed sin into it? Couldn't He have created a world where He would not have allowed sin? He would not have allowed a devil in the garden who tempted Adam and Eve? Those are questions that the Bible does not explicitly answer, but you're trying to answer them for your children as well as you can. My, uh, my, uh, I guess you could say my answer to that question was evidently God esteemed a world that had sin in it, but a Redeemer over a world that had no sin and no Redeemer. That's as good as we can answer on that kind of question. But those are the kind of questions that we are often asked in our home, and I love to receive them. You know, Jesus has received many questions in the Gospel of Luke. In fact, uh, some of those questions are sincere questions. Some of those questions are meant to trip him up. But every time a question is asked to Jesus, we learn something deep and profound. For instance, uh, one of the first questions that was asked to Jesus takes us all the way back to chapter 5 of Luke. And in this particular text, he has healed a paralytic and he has forgiven the paralytic of his sins. And the scribes and the Pharisees asked, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And then, just a few verses later in Luke chapter 5, he's he's with the sinners. He's with the tax collectors. He's with the scoundrels of the culture. Another question is posed. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? On and on those questions go. If you go over to chapter 6, and in chapter 6... Uh, you have that passage where Jesus deems Himself Lord over the Sabbath. And in chapter 6, verse 2, the, the Pharisees ask, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And then if you look over in chapter 10, you have the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and he asks a very central question. Behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And just Jesus answers the question, well, if you want to do something to inherit eternal life, here's what you do. You love the Lord your God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And you love your neighbor as yourself. And that poses another question to Jesus. Who is my neighbor? Verse 29. And then you have question in chapter 17. Another very important question asked by the Pharisees. When is the kingdom of God going to come. Of course, they don't trust Jesus. It's a, one of those questions that's meant to uh, trip Jesus up. But again, we see these questions. And then a few weeks ago, uh, we saw in chapter 20, verse 2, a very important question asked by the chief priest and the scribes and the elders. Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who is it that gave you this authority? And then last week, we saw another question in verse 22. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? All of these questions were given to Jesus, and Jesus' response taught us something deep and wonderful about the kingdom, about Himself, about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And today we come to the final question that is posed to Him. 
The day's question is the final question because by the time he's done with this question, the scoffers will be silenced. It's kind of a foreshadowing, if you will, of Romans 3 verse 19 where Paul says, now that we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth will be stopped and the whole world will be guilty before God. The mouths will be stopped today after this final question. And the reason for that is that Jesus Christ is the very wisdom of God. He is infinite wisdom. He is wisdom and the Word of God incarnate. And that's why it's important to sit at His feet. Now at this point, the the Pharisees and other leaders in the Jewish world uh, have had their chance at Jesus. They've challenged Jesus. They've challenged Him about His authority. And last week they tried to get Him in trouble uh, with the political powers that be. And now Luke's going to give us a third controversy that Jesus experiences since he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. All right? The third controversy since Sunday. This is probably Wednesday at this point. And now the Sadducees are going to come to Jesus to try to trip him up. And what they're going to try to do is to get Jesus to um, speak about something they do not believe is seen in Moses. Now, what is Moses? That is a shorthand for Genesis to Deuteronomy. The Sadducees don't believe in the Old Testament as a whole. They only believed in Genesis to Deuteronomy, and they don't believe that in Moses, that is, Genesis to Deuteronomy, or what we call the Torah or the law, they don't believe the resurrection is seen there. Therefore, they don't believe in the resurrection. And so this question that's going to be raised is vital to us. Why is it vital? Because if there is no resurrection, let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. But if there is a resurrection, it changes everything. It is an ultimate game changer. It changes everything. If there is a resurrection, wisdom calls us to forsake all for the sake of the one who will be the ground of this resurrection. That's why this text is important to us this morning. Now, the first thing we're going to see is the resurrection mocked by the Sadducees. Look with me in verse 27. And there came to him some Sadducees, those who deny there is a resurrection. They denied the resurrection, and I cannot... Uh, I cannot avoid this. That's why they were sad, you see. All right? That's how you'll remember that. Now, this is the first time and the only time that the Sadducees are mentioned in the Gospel of Luke. In fact, it's the only time, this particular text, that they are mentioned in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, Matthew mentions the Sadducees several times, but Luke and Mark only mention them once. And that shouldn't surprise us here, because the Sadducees' influence was centered in Jerusalem, and Luke has focused on Jesus' ministry in Galilee. Now, the Sadducees formed the core of the priesthood staffing the temple. 
And they also had a monopoly on the high priestly line. But the fact is, we don't know much about the Sadducees. In fact, we know very little um, about them except what their enemies have to say about them. Extra-biblical writings, for instance, Josephus, who was a Pharisee, gives us a lot of detail about the Sadducees. But since when do you get reliable, credible information from your enemy? And so we don't know much about the Sadducees, uh, but we do know that they were well-to-do, they were wealthy, and they were men of high esteem. In fact, the money changing and the animals being sold in the temple... Well, that was the Sadducees who were behind that. They were the party of privilege. And we do know this, that the priest uh, that made up the uh, Sanhedrin, which was the highest court of justice among the Jews, the majority of that 71-member Sanhedrin was made up of the Sadducees. And of the, the various parties that made up Judaism, there were two main parties or sects. And we know those to be the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Alright? Uh, they had similar uh, origins as far as the time frame goes. Uh, they were both formed sometime in the 2nd century B.C. But that's where the commonality ends. The Pharisees are the kind of people you and I identify more with. They believed... Uh, in the entire Old Testament. They didn't call it the Old Testament. They called it the Tanakh, the Torah, the Nebim, the Kethubim, but the, the Law, the Prophets, and the Writings. But they believed that the Old Testament as we know it was and is the Word of God. They also believed in a future bodily resurrection from the grave. That was the Pharisees. The Sadducees, on the other hand did not believe that the Old Testament was the Word of God or is the Word of God. They only believed from Genesis to Deuteronomy and they did not believe that, the, uh, that there was a future bodily resurrection. And Jesus tells us in the parallel text in Matthew 22 verse 29 why they did not believe in a future bodily resurrection. He says, you do not know the Scriptures nor do you know the power of God. That was their reason. They didn't know the Scriptures, nor did they know the power of God. And yet they made up uh, the majority staffing of the Sanhedrin. That's a scary proposition. Their view, I think, is akin uh, to the worldview today we see of secular humanists. And even Darwinian evolutionists, like we saw in the debate the other evening with Bill Nye. Who believed that once you die, your mind ceases to function... And you just go to nothingness. That's what the Sadducees believed. And they were wealthy and they were powerful. And I think this played a role in it as well. Uh, because of their wealth and their power and because of their denial of life after death, their hope was rooted here. Okay? Their hope was rooted here. And if that's where you're living today, uh, you are in the same boat with the Sadducees. If your hope is rooted here, uh, then you're living in a manner that denies that there is a future resurrection to come. And so, uh, that's the group that comes to Jesus. They were anti-supernaturalist. You go, what does that mean? Well, anti-supernatural. What does it mean? Supernatural it means there are things that we see from God in Scripture that... Um, a naturalistic explanation cannot do. Uh, 
For example, supernatural things like miracles, okay? They did not believe in that which is supernatural. They were rationalists. They believed you could explain everything by the human mind, all right? Rationally. The reasonable man, as Bill Nye spoke of the other night. And there was one man who threatened their way of life. The man, Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ's ministry was anything but natural. Okay? You couldn't explain the works and the words of our Lord Jesus Christ without a supernatural worldview. And so they come to Jesus with this intricate sevenfold question. And they want to expose Him. Okay? They want to trip Him up. And this reminds us of the warfare that's involved with the person of Jesus. When Jesus is at work, there will be spiritual warfare. And when you have people who are following Jesus, when you have a church that is centered on the person and work of Jesus, there will be spiritual warfare. Uh, we have, we're promised that, in fact. From Genesis 3.15 on, we see this warfare. The seed of the serpent will bruise the heel of the, seed of the seed of the woman. But the seed of the woman will crush the head of the seed of the serpent. And so there are two peoples, if you will, in history. Those who do not bow the knee to the seed of the woman. They are described as the seed of the serpent. And then there are those who have bowed the knee, who have been saved, redeemed by the seed of the woman, who will prevail. But they will prevail not without warfare. And this is just more evidence of this warfare. Well, in verse 28, we see the question. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children... The man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Of course, they are appealing there to the custom of leveret marriage, which is first mentioned in Genesis 28 with Onan and, and Tamar and that debacle. But we see the law in Deuteronomy chapter 25. The word leveret comes from the, the Latin word levir, which literally means husband's brother. Now here's the law. In that day, if you have a man who dies childless, a married man who dies childless, by law in Israel, his brother was to marry his widowed wife. Alright? Why? To perpetuate the name, the family. Okay? It was considered ultimate death to, for the family line, the family name, to go extinct. That's why you have the problem with the barren women in the Old Testament, especially the matriarchs. That's death at its highest. And so you were to marry your brother's uh, wife and to keep the family wealth and name intact. Now the idea of their hypothetical question that you're going to read about, we're going to see in just a moment, perhaps comes from an apocryphal book called the Tobit. Because in that particular book, there's this Alfred Hitchcock slash Stephen King type uh, story of a woman who ends up marrying seven men, not at the same time, but each one of the men died. 
And they died in the bedchamber on the wedding night because they were strangled by a demon. All right? And that story is very similar to the story that they're going to pose to Jesus right here. And they say, Teacher, uh, there were seven brothers, verse 29. The first took a wife and died without children. And the second, and the, uh, and the third took her. And likewise, all seven left no children and died. A real, I mean, is there some humor to this story, if you think about it? If I'm the, like, at the point, the fourth or the fifth brother, I'm thinking, no, dude, I'm, I'm not going <laughs> to, I'm going to ignore this uh, leveret law. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, now remember, they don't believe in a resurrection. They're, they're trying to expose the problem with that view. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. Given the reality of resurrection life, this woman's been married to seven brothers, which one is she going to be married to? All right? Is there going to be adultery in the resurrection? All right? Is there going to be polyandry, which is a woman being married to numerous men? Is, is there going to be one, per, one brother who's just kind of privileged over the other brother, brothers? And if that's the case, which one? They're showing their problem with the resurrection. That's how skeptics are, okay? Uh, skeptics don't want to bow to what is clear. They want to, to expose their problems with that which is clear. Now, for the Sadducees to deny the resurrection, the future resurrection, is to deny half of the gospel. Understand that. Oftentimes, when we present the gospel, we don't speak about the resurrection. But the resurrection is half the gospel. Because if Christ has not been raised, then He's just one of some 10,000 criminals who was crucified on a Roman cross. There is no evidence that the Father has received the payment of the Son if there is no resurrection. If Christ has not been raised, then new creation has not inaugurated into this present age. In fact, that's what we read this morning in 1 Corinthians 15. There are six ifs from 1 Corinthians 15 verses 12 to 19. If there is no resurrection from the grave, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, we have no hope. We're still in our sins. We misrepresent God. And those who have died before us have perished. That's what Paul says. And so, even though they're asking Jesus a question with a sinister motive... And he's not bound to answer those kind of questions because this strikes at the very heart of the gospel. Resurrection. Jesus responds. And so we see that the resurrection here is mocked by their question and we're going to see him maintain the doctrine of resurrection in verses 34 to 40. Look in verse 34. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry... And are given in marriage. Now, 
Jesus is saying that in this age, the realities of life are this. The sons of this age marry. Now, sons of this age is not a derogatory term. He's referring to you and me. Uh, those who are living in the present age, awaiting the day of consummation when He returns. But after this age, in the resurrection, relationships are going to change. Notice in verse 35. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age, notice this age and that age, I'll come back in a moment uh, to that, and to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot die anymore because they're equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. Now, let me just say here, this is one of the countless examples in, in history of a heresy uh, arising and God using that heresy providentially to teach us something very important and profound. We see it in church history. The, the first four councils, you've got the Council of Nicaea in 325, the Council of Nicene Constantinople in 381, and, and you have Ephesus in 431, and, and Chalcedon in 451. All of those councils were formed out of heresies arising among the people who profess Christ. And we, we forge deep theology from those councils. We see it in Paul's letters. Most of Paul's letters come because of some form of heresy or some assault on the gospel. So we're thankful God um, is able to use these things in His providential purposes. That's why Luther said that the devil is God's devil. And even before the Apostle Paul, you have Jesus who capitalizes on this heresy to teach us something very important. And in response to the Sadducees here, he's going to teach us several things. Now, the first thing he teaches us is that history is divided into, uh, or you could say, human existence is divided into two ages. Uh, notice in verse 34, he speaks of this age, and then... He speaks in verse 35 of that age. This age is the age in which we have, we presently live, and that age is the age that will usher in the new heavens and the new earth. Now, we can get into complicated theology here about how that age has erupted into this age through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but that's not the point here. The point is that human existence is divided up into this age and that age. And let me just say something about this age. It has a termination date. This age has a short termination date. You think your milk has a short termination date. In light of eternity, this age has as short a termination date as anything you have in your refrigerator. That age is an age that we can't even conceive. It's the age of all of eternity. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing His praise till since we first began our gun. I'm thinking about writing a song with those lyrics. Those are the first lines. <laughs> now, here's the question. Are you living with a this age mentality? 
or that age mentality? That, that really is a very important question we have to pose from this text when you consider human existence is divided into two ages. Only one age has, is ultimate. Only one age is enduring. One age, this age, is going to be crushed to death when the kingdoms of this world becomes the kingdoms of our God and of His Christ. Now, how do we answer that question? Well, we, we talked last week about rendering unto God what is God. And that's a very important uh, thought. But think about it this way. Are you living with anxiety today? It, it, it does anxiety and fear and despair follow you like a shadow? That is the symptom of a this age mentality. No matter what you profess. Okay? You, you have made something ultimate in this present age that is not ultimate. And so you live with fear. You live with anxiety. You live with despair. Or perhaps you live with jealousy. You're jealous of the neighbor. You're jealous of your co-worker who got promoted. You're jealous of the person who has more talent than you. You covet. Okay? You get Angry and bitter at other people. All of those are the earmarks of a this age mentality. You've made this life ultimate. When you live with a that age mentality, you're free from these things. Because you recognize that Christ indeed has been raised from the grave and your identity is bound up with Him. We have been raised up with Christ and seated with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That is your ultimate reality. And so when Paul says in Colossians 3, If then you've been raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You say, Amen. That's the that age mentality. And so the first thing that Jesus teaches us here is that human existence is divided with this age and that age and this age in the end will not matter. If you're an Olympian and you are winning one gold medal after another gold medal, in the end it will not matter. And so if you lose that gold medal, because as we saw a couple of years ago in London, a girl stepped six inches out of bounds as a gymnast, yes, that's disappointing, but it's not crushing. Because this isn't ultimate reality anyway. So the question we have to ask ourselves, are you living with this age or that age in mind? Now the glory about being a Christian is if you are presently living with a this age mentality... There is, there is the promise of forgiveness. Your sins are forgiven through the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. Your, your sins are covered by the blood of Christ. Your sins are covered by the righteousness of Christ. And there's also transforming power that is offered to you by the Spirit of holiness who raised Christ from the grave. That's the glory of being a Christian. But if you are presently living in this age as if there is no age to come... There's also a glory in knowing all you have to do is repent of your sins. Turn from your idols and bow the knee to King Jesus who is ushering in that age to come. The second thing we learn here is, and to explain this, 
the Jews of that day, their perspective on the afterlife, that is the Jews who believed in the afterlife, not the Sadducees, but the other Orthodox Jews, they essentially saw the afterlife as being complete continuity with all the good things we experience in this life. We're like that too. We think about heaven, we don't often think as we should about the glory of God, the exalted Christ. We think about mama. Alright? We think about uh, grandma. We think about a lot of earthly pleasures we have. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. But that's not what's ultimate about heaven. What's ultimate about heaven is we're going to see the face of God. We will know Him as we are known. But they saw this complete continuity between this age and the next age. And that brings us to the next thing that we learn here. So we've learned that there's two ages to human existence. The second thing we learn, and this is troubling at face value, there's no marriage in heaven. There's no marriage in heaven. Jesus makes it very clear here. And at face value, for those of us who love, deeply love our spouses, that's quite disappointing. But remember, in the new heavens and the new earth, love will be perfected. You will love and you will experience love in such a manner that it will make all marriages, the greatest of marriages, pale in comparison. You're not going to love your present spouse less in heaven. You're going to love your present spouse more. And you're going to experience love from your present spouse in a manner that you can't even conceive. But that's also hope for many. There's some people who are in some terrible, difficult marriages. And that's not ultimate. Remember that. Your bad marriage does not define you if you are a Christian. And then there are others who haven't been married and long to be married. My wife has a very close friend who longs to be married. She's in her 40s. And in a world, in a church world that that seems to esteem married couples over singles, she struggles. And this is hopeful to remind us That's not your significance. That's not your identity. Whether you're single or whether you're married. But here's the question I would also pose that we need to ask out of this. Why will there not be marriage in heaven? You thought about that? Well, the text kind of tells us. For they cannot die anymore. Verse 36. One of the purposes of marriage is procreation. Genesis 1 makes that very clear. Now, some people cannot biologically procreate. We don't look down our noses, but perhaps adoption or foster care is another viable option. But one of the real purposes of marriage is procreation. Well, in the eschaton, that is, in that age, there will not be death. There will be no longer a need to procreate. All right? So that's one of the reasons marriage is not going to be a reality in that age. Let me give you some other reasons. Marriage is the central picture of the relationship that Christ has with His church. Paul says that makes makes that very clear in Ephesians 5. He says this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and His church. Ephesians 5.32. Guess what? One day, we will no longer need that picture. We will no longer need a picture because we're going to have the real McCoy. We're going to experience the covenantal love of Christ with His bride unhindered. 
There's other reasons as well. You think about uh, procreation. You think about um, a picture. But there's a third purpose of marriage. Um, pleasure. There is pleasure in marriage. But at the right hand of God, there is pleasure forevermore. We will no longer need that pleasure. We will have it consummated in the person of Christ. Furthermore, marriage serves as uh, a proclamation. It preaches that Christ has been raised from the grave. So when sinners see your marriage, yes, it's imperfect, but it's marked by commitment, covenant commitment. It's marked by repentance. It's marked by love. They look at your marriage and say, Christ must be raised from the grave. So our marriages preach. One other purpose of marriage is partnership. Uh, Genesis 1 makes it clear it's not good for man to be alone because we have been entrusted with a mandate that we cannot carry out alone. Men and women need each other in this mandate. Partnership. There will be no longer need for that partnership because when Christ returns, the kingdom will be consummated. Okay? We're not going to be trying to extend His kingdom as partners in the gospel. His kingdom will be from Everlasting to everlasting from the ends of the earth as the waters cover the sea. But this text uh, teaches us there will be no marriage and no need for that. The third thing we learn is not everyone's going to heaven. This text makes it clear that not everyone will go to heaven. Notice he says, verse 35 those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead, those are the ones who go to heaven. Those who are considered worthy to attain to that age. Now, how do you... How, do you, how are you commended as worthy? Well, the text doesn't tell us. But Luke does. And if you go all the way back to chapter 3 of Luke, for instance, and I've, get, I've given you these texts on the screen. If you look in chapter 3, verse 3, John the Baptist came in proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And then you look in verse 8. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Then you look over in chapter 5, verse 32. Jesus says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Of course, we know there there's none righteous. It's those who are self-righteous and see no need for repentance. And then you look over in chapter 15 in that glorious chapter on uh, repentance and on restoration. And in chapter 15, verse 7, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous who need no repentance. And then some of his final words in chapter 24 after he's been raised from the grave. He says, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name. So Luke makes it very clear. How do we uh, attain to that age and be deemed worthy before God? It's through repentance. It's recognizing your sin. 
and that your sin is an offense against a holy God. But repentance also infers faith because you're turning from something to someone. And that someone is the man Christ Jesus who just in about two days from now is going to die a sinner's death and be treated like a vile criminal and receive the wrath of God and be raised in about four or five days for the forgiveness of sins. And that's what repentance is. And the question I have this morning, have you repented of your sins? We've already seen this age is not ultimate. That age is And for those who have not repented of their sins, you're going to experience eternity, but not in that age of resurrection life. It's a place that Luke makes clear is a place called hell. A place of conscious suffering. And repentance is is this sense in which you have... You come to understand that you apprehend the mercy of God in Christ. you, You hate your sin. You turn from it unto God in Christ with full purpose after new obedience. That's what repentance is. Not everyone is going to heaven, only those who repent. And the fourth thing we learn here is that when God raises us, we'll never die again. That is a beautiful, beautiful thought. And, and Jesus essentially says three things here about that reality. Notice, He says, uh, we will become equal to angels. Now, that does not mean you become an angel. Let's get that thought out. That is so common a thought in our world. You do not become an angel. That's a distinct creation. Okay? You will not be angels in that age. You will become equal to angels. Now, what does that mean? It means... In part, that the angels worship God unhindered, laying their crowns down at His throne. It means that you will be faultless in your character. But most importantly, angels don't die. Angels don't die. And you will be equal to the angels in the sense that your immortality means you will never die again. Life unhindered for all eternity. That's ultimate reality. Secondly, he says... You will be sons of God. In short, that just means we have the inheritance rights of the firstborn son. We come to Christ by faith. He's the heir of all things. We're now the heir of all things. Because what's true of Christ is true of us. We become sons of the resurrection. Which means the mortal has been swallowed up by the immortal. The inglorious has been swallowed up by the glorious. Okay? The perishable has been swallowed up by the imperishable. Our reality is that we are now sons of the resurrection. And this everlasting immortality is one of the great benefits, one of the great privileges as believers, because we all know that there's coming a day we're going to die. And we also know there's coming a day when your deepest loved ones are going to die. I saw a funeral yesterday on the news, a family I've been praying for, I know many of you have been praying for, Uh, Eight children and a mother. Eight. Eight hearses. And surviving father and surviving daughter. And that's... The present death that we experience, uh, in a very, very real way, makes this life a partial tragedy. Let's be honest about that. But there's coming a day when there will be no more funerals. Alright? And that is the glory for those who attain to that age through repentance 
and faith. And to solidify his argument, Jesus closes it out by going to one of the most famous texts in all the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 3. You need to spend time in Exodus 3. It's where Moses is encountered by the living God. Alright? The one who wrote Genesis to Deuteronomy and Psalm 90 learns who God is in Exodus chapter 3. Notice with me in verse 37 and 38. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed. So he goes to the Sadducees' Bible. In the passage about the bush. I love the way he described Exodus 3. In fact, I've got in my Exodus 3, I've got the passage about the bush. Why would Jesus describe it that way? Why didn't He just say, go to Exodus 3? Well, they didn't have chapter divisions then. They didn't have verse divisions then. That didn't come to the time of the Reformation. So He describes it as the passage about the bush. And so He proves about the resurrection from this passage where He calls the Lord, that is Yahweh, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. For all, that is, these patriarchs, live to Him. It's very interesting how He answers them. He goes to the Word of God. He doesn't use evidences, though I don't believe there's a... Uh, that, I believe that there's a place for that. You can see that in 1 Corinthians 15 about the eyewitnesses. But He goes to the Word of God, where, where God identifies Himself to Moses... In this way, I am the God of your fathers. Exodus 3, 5. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Um, and so what Jesus is saying there is that if He presently is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it would make no sense if they aren't currently alive. He is presently the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In fact, when Moses, he says that to Moses, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had been dead for centuries. And he comes to them, he comes to Moses, he says, I am presently, and that's a real way you could translate it because of the present tense verb there, I am presently the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If they died into nothingness, the way you Sadducees believe, then God can't presently be their God. That's what Jesus is telling them. Indeed, Resurrection life um, has been the belief of all of God's saints, beginning, you could even say, with uh, Abel. All right? Abel and Enoch and, and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and on you go. In fact, in Hebrews 11, we're running out of time, but briefly he says he was, they were looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Resurrection uh, life is not something that Jesus invented. It's something that has been believed from the very beginning. And let me just say this as a side. We see here Jesus' view of the Old Testament. Uh, when we say the Bible is inerrant and infallible, we're not just making a theological assertion, okay? We're actually allowing the Bible to... Uh, speak to its very doctrine. And Jesus is appealing to the tense of a verb there. You have some who say, well, uh, I believe the ideas are true, but not necessarily the words. Um, in other words, 
it's, it's infallible but not inerrant. It's infallible in its purpose. Jesus appeals to the very tense of a verb to make his argument. He says, it says in Exodus 3, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jesus' whole argument rests on the fact that that verb in Exodus 3 is a present tense verb. So we see even there the inference of Jesus' view of the Scriptures. Jesus believed the Scriptures are the Word of God. Well, at this point, they are silenced. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you've spoken well. Uh, the, the scribes here uh, believed with the Pharisees that the resurrection is true. So they uh, agree with Him there. But they no longer dared to ask Him any questions. Very interesting how this ends. And there will be no more questions. The questions have come over and over again. We've seen that in Luke. There will be no more questions. The only questions that are going to be asked now are going to be questions asked by Jesus Himself. We'll see that next week. And it shows us there's nothing they can do to Him in their present uh, approach. Uh, every encounter has left Jesus in the place of authority. Whose authority? Or rather said, who has the authority to lead God's people? I think Luke is making that clear to Theophilus. And it's going to become more clear in about three to four days. When Jesus is raised from the grave. As Paul writes in Romans 1 verse 4, Jesus is declared in the resurrection to be the Son of God in power by the Spirit of holiness who raises Him from the grave. And so, yes, if you want resurrection hope, you can go to Exodus chapter 3. But the ultimate hope is going to be found in an empty tomb. As Paul says in Romans 14 verse 9, For to this end Christ died and lived again, that He might be Lord of both the dead and the living. And so that comes back to the question that I posed earlier. What makes us worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead? Repentance. 